Hi, and welcome to the 40 Drinks Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McLaughlin. This is the 10th episode of the podcast, and I wanted to say thank you so much for listening. I am profoundly grateful to have you here with me. Today, I'm talking to someone who I think you're going to love and someone who is going to blow you away with her story. Brienne Davis is a working Hollywood actress. She says she's one of those people you've seen in everything. Though she's been in recovery for more than 12 years, two years ago, when she was 38, Brienne outed herself as a recovering sex and love addict. She says she got her first hit in eighth grade, but can trace the origins of her addiction back even further than that. After getting her tenure chip, she felt called to be of even bigger service, which led to launching a podcast and writing a book and modeling what successful recovery looks like for others dealing with the addiction and modeling what positive relationships look like for her son. But you don't want to hear me tell you the story. Let's say hello to Brienne. Hi, Brienne. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, good to be here. I'm so excited for this conversation. So you and I met through one of the podcasting groups on Facebook. We don't, uh, we hadn't connected before today. So, but you have um, a really wild and colorful story that I'm very excited to hear about. Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I, well, if you've never met me, I'm Brianne Davis. I'm a Hollywood actress. I'm a working actress, I like to say, not like an A-list celebrity. I'm one of those people you've seen in everything and you're like, hey, I recognize you. So I've been in shows like Six, Casual, Prom Night, Jarhead, Lucifer recently, and a bunch of other stuff. And I recently, the last, in the last two years, came out as a recovered sex and love addict I have 12 and a half years of recovery in sex and love addiction. I wrote a best-selling novel called Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, which is fiction, but it's based on my experience in Hollywood and in this disease that has so much stigma and shame, especially for women. And I just really wanted to open the doors to how deadly this addiction is and how it can take you down and how society amplifies it and glamorizes sex and love addiction. And I also started a podcast called Secret Life, which allows other people to share their secrets because the moment I wrote the article for HuffPost two years ago, it's like the last bit of stigma and shame just evaporated and I was fully myself. And I also get to now educate people on this disease that over 38 million people in the United States have. And that statistic was 2017, I believe. And 38% of them are women, which I have to tell you now it's like blown up. And yeah, I'm so glad to be here. And thank you for having me. (laughs) As you know, I like to sort of chat, uh, chat with people about their, the transitions that their lives have seen Um, And they've gone through around the years before and after age 40. Now, you just recently turned 40, so happy birthday. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, But you realized, so I was amazed when I listened to your podcast to learn that that your addiction had its roots. You could trace them back to eighth grade. Yes, yes. That was the first moment I... 
I got my hit is what we call it. That high, that experience mm -hmm. of, if you talk to any drug addict, they'll tell you the first moment they did drugs or drank alcohol or even eating when they had their first sugar. Cause I also am like have a sugar addiction, but I remember specifically, and I write about it in the book about this moment when I cheated for the first time and got my boyfriend's best friend to kiss me in the closet. And I kid you not, it was like heroin shot up my entire body and the power and control I felt over another human being because inside I, I was so powerless mm -hmm. that it was like, this is on, I have this power over somebody else. Oh, this is the best high in the world. And I've been chasing that butterfly that living in fantasy romance, finding my soulmate since that age. But I honestly even tell you, it goes back even earlier, you know, being boy crazy, not wanting to live in my household because my parents fought all the time. So I would be, I'm a latchkey kid. So I would sit there and watch television and escape in like dirty dancing, um, Romeo and Julia, any movie I would like as soon as the love scene would happen or they were the first kiss, oh, that's the best high in the world, the first kiss. I still look, I sound like an addict. I'm like, oh, back to the first kiss. But that, that's what I've been chasing. And it started really, really early with television and film. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so you lived with that until you were in your late 20s when you finally realized that it was uh, an issue. It was more than just something you did. It was an addiction. It was something that was um, affecting your life negatively. Yes. Yes. I had that dark night of the soul moment is what I call it. And and I write about it in this more in the second book. I, I mean, listen, I had a lot of moments where I was like, something is wrong here. Like we call them like you know, the bottoms, but then your, your lower keeps getting lower. Like you keep right. like turning up the notch to make it even more sensational or scandalous or cause I love secrets. Like I thrive off secrets, um, having one foot in the door and one foot out at all times. But yeah, I remember my dark night of the soul. I was, I was living with my boyfriend of four years and you know, that butterfly feeling went away, that first falling in love, you know, we were living together. Now it's time to pay bills. Now it's time to get real. And I was like, okay, this is what it, it feels like. It doesn't feel like the movies, but I don't know if I like this either. And what happened was a, a mentor of mine passed away. And two days later, I found myself on location across the country shooting a movie and starting to flirt an intrigue with like someone I didn't even really like as a person. That was the big key. Like when I put that person next to my boyfriend, I was like, wait, I, my boyfriend is this amazing person. And if we weren't together, I'd want to be his friend. But here I am flirting with this person that's mean to waiters is not even an, like, not even that great. So right. that was my first light bulb. And then the second one was I started intriguing and a intriguing means when you're acting more available. So you like give out your number or you DM someone or, you know, it goes further than just flirting. And I remember looking in the mirror going, am I going to be doing this till I'm 80? And I'm not, am I always going to be looking for this person to complete me, to fix me, to rescue me, to save me, to be my soulmate, to give me that high? I said, something, it can't be all these guys. Something is really wrong with me. Because I was, 
I, I've never had a one night stand. Let me just be clear. Like I haven't had a lot of sex. I'm a sex and love addict, but I haven't had a lot of sexual partners, especially for 27. And I've never had a one night stand. That wasn't my thing. It was going from relationship to relationship to relationship and overlapping them a little bit, like already intriguing, already acting available while I was getting out of another relationship. So it was, that was my journey. And I just remember that moment going, there's something seriously wrong here. Like I can't do this when I'm 80. Am I going to be on my deathbed, never fully connected to another human being on this planet? And that was the moment. And I reached out to a therapist a friend's therapist. And I went in and saw her when I was back in town and I told him my story. And I talk about this in the book that she said two things to me. And this is so fascinating and funny. She said, the first thing is like, you have a secret and I don't know what it is, but you wear the mask of a high class prostitute. And I was like, bitch, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know if I can cuss, but that's my thought. Like, who are you? What? Yeah. yeah, she said, you wear this mask where it's like this perfective mask. Like, I don't know who you are. But then she said, oh, I know what your problem is. You're a sex and love addict. And I said, what is that? Like, all I heard about sex addiction was Tiger Woods getting caught cheating, blah, 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 that whole right. thing. And we went through these 40 questions. So if you're listening, there's these 40 self-diagnosed questionnaire. You can go online, print it up. It takes two seconds. It's like questions like, do you look for someone to complete you? Have you had inappropriate sex with inappropriate people at inappropriate times? Do you um, find yourself going back to toxic relationships, unavailable people? Have you lost track of the number of people you had sex with? Those are the kind of questions. So I, of course, was like, yes, yes. Yes. And I'm not going to tell you my number because you got to go read the book because it's a journey, but like it's high. And they say if you get more than five yeses out of 40, you might have this problem. So let's just say my number was really high. And I went to my first meeting that night. I called my boyfriend on the way that I live with and I was like, Jesus, I'm a sex and love addict. Like crying in traffic on the 101. If you've been in Los Angeles, it's like bumper to bumper traffic, hysterically crying in the car, looking like a crazy. And I get home and he prints up all the meetings of Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, which is a 12-step program like AA. And he highlights all the meetings I could go to. And I found myself at a meeting that Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m., sitting with in a church part in a church, which I'm like, ah. Right. So 30 people, all different from me, every ethnicity, race, uh, financial background, everything sexual orientation and every single person in that room said something I thought I felt I did I almost did and it was like I was home I was like oh my god I'm not broken nothing is wrong with me I just didn't get the tools to have healthy relationships and that was my journey and I surrendered that day that's wonderful that's so brave and amazing thanks um <laughs> so but that's not what I'm interested in talking to you about because that was in your late twenties, right? Mm -hmm. So when I listened to the first episode of your podcast, you yes. talked about how, um, and this was, you launched your podcast in 2020. So it was, you were just in your late thirties mm -hmm. and you talked about how your husband wanted you to go take a writing course. And you're like, I'm not a writer. I don't want to write. 
And then you started writing and a story came pouring out of you. And then you were like, well, wait a minute, a podcast, but I don't want to be a, I don't want to talk out loud. I don't want to talk to other people. I'm, I'm private. I hate my voice. You know, I'm an actor and I hate my voice. So I was like, I, nobody needs to listen to my voice and what I have to say. (laughs) I don't want a podcast. I don't want to write anything. I'm dyslexic. I have ADHD. I've never written. I can't even write a complete sentence. Like that was my thoughts in my head. Yeah. So what was it about your late 30s? Like you've already climbed this mountain. You've already, you know, summited. You're already, you know, in recovery for a long time. So those are major accomplishments. But something was shifting for you. Something was changing in your late 30s. And now you were putting yourself out in a way you hadn't before. So what was it, do you think, that changed? God, it was a really a big combination of things. I think becoming a mother in recovery and looking at my son and having to mirror for him how to have healthy relationships, how to have boundaries. I think that was one big thing that happened. And on at the same time, I got my 10 years in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. So s- sitting in a room and having that 10-year chip, which in my program, that's a long time. I'm an old timer. There's not a lot of recovery in sex and love addiction because our addiction, you walk out the door and you hit it. Like, so bottles of vodka are walking around. I snort and drink people. That's like validation, attention, get me high, make me feel worthy, you know? So that's what my addiction is all about. So when I got that 10 years and I was sitting in a room of a hundred people now, cause our program has blown up. Um, and sharing my experience, strength, and hope, and then seeing 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds talking about how they cannot connect anymore. They cannot find intimacy. They're on social media, always looking for attention and validation, but they feel so empty. The porn that's available is desensitizing their sexuality. I'm talking young boys and girls. And I was like, oh my God, this, this voice came over me. I was like, you have to be bigger in your service because I just do have to say in sex and love addiction, and especially the program, you're not supposed to talk about it. Like AA, you can share it. And it's very stigma to talk about it in public. So not a lot of people talk about it. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Our society is killing themselves. More suicide is is happens over this addiction. Murder, just watch a dateline. There's like, it's a love triangle galore, right? So I just had that epiphany. And then at the same time, my husband who was the man that highlighted those meetings. Let me just tell you, we've been together 17 years. So it's not Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's not like I got recovery in this program and found my perfect person. I got recovery in this program and I found myself. I found, I'm my own, I like to say fucking soulmate. I'm the one that completes me. I'm the one that lives and dies with me, me, not my husband, not my son. So it was that revelation when my husband's coming at me going, hey, you need to like, that you have this story. And, and I was pitching a show around town about female sex and love addicts with Jana Kramer, my really good friend. Um, and they kept changing it. And I was like, that's not the story I want to tell. And he's like, there's this writing course, this writing course. And I'm like, I'm dyslexic. Leave me alone. I'm shooting Lucifer. I'm not a writer. Get off my, like, go away, man. Like, like, (laughs) I do enough. Go away. Right. But then it was like, fine, I'll take the writing course after the sixth time. And I kid you not, the first draft of the book, not saying it was good. I wrote it in 45 days. 
So it was like higher power, God, help outside of your community. Stop just going to rehab facilities and talking like be more of service to the world. It all like collided at one time. And then I think the business shutting down as an actor. So it took away that creativity outlet of me disappearing into a character. So it was like a perfect storm for me to be like, fuck it. This is my truth. This is who I am. I'm a woman in recovery. I'm married for 17 years. I, you know, I have 12 and a half years of recovery. This is my story. It's in fiction. You can decide which story is mine and which is not. And here's here's my voice as a podcast host trying to help other people in their addictions, mental health, whatever it is. So it was this perfect storm of just like, let's get authentic and raw and real and pandemic, right? So it was just this virus overtaking me of authenticity, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that you, you say that because one of the things, uh, you know, I've done, you know, as I got so curious about age 40 and, uh, you know, how people handle age 40, I've, you know, done some reading about it and, um, and truly it is a time in our lives where we stop trusting Stop, stop putting so much trust in external authorities and really start trusting ourselves more and our own experience and our own guidance. And so yeah. it sounds like that's really a big part of what you were doing. I mean, trusting in yourself to know what the next step is, is sounds like, you know, and putting yourself out there in the world. Yeah, I think, you know, luckily, because of the eight years of intense therapy twice a week, doing the 12 steps, sponsoring people, doing all that inner child work with trauma and sexual assault and all that stuff that I did allowed me at this age to be like, here I am, flaws and all, like, judge me. I'm not, I've done bad things. I'm not a bad person. I've done the best I could with my life. And I used to be selfish and self-seeking and I'm not anymore. So it was like, but I'm afraid if I didn't do that work, I would not be in a place of acceptance because I would still be chasing that outside validation, which I see a lot of people in my business still doing, you know, at 40, you know, all the plastic surgery, all like trying to reinvent ourselves or whatever that is. Like, I'm just, I'm so grateful I reached this age and I was willing to, to peel those that onion to, and I always say it's like unzipping my skin and crawling out of it and just standing there raw, completely exposed. I'm so grateful I did that because I can't imagine where I would be and how much damage I would have caused and how depressed and who knows, I might not even have been here. Who knows? Um, Something you just said uh, almost knocked me over because I mean, I could have, I could be saying the same quote you just said, which is, you know, when I was younger, you know, I may have done bad things, but I'm not a bad person. And I used to be self-centered and self-seeking and I'm not anymore. You know, I've evolved and, you know, that actually just blew me away because you, you know, um, while I like to qualify qualify myself as a party girl through my twenties and Uh thirties, uh, my um, drug of choice was alcohol, and I like to say I did one thing and I did it well. <laughs> <laughs> I 
So, you know, there were moments in, you know, in my probably late 20s and 30s where I thought, do I have a problem? Probably more in my 20s. Do I have a problem? But I could always stop. And so it, ah, it's not a problem. It's just, I like it. And it's the people I hung out with. And, yeah. and that's fine, right? It, it, they, all these things make us who we are. But um, so I don't have that same, you know, addiction uh, challenge in my life. And yet, one of those things you just said is, I mean, I could be saying it myself about looking back at myself in my 20s. It's its just amaz amazing how similar we all are, even though we yeah. think we're so, you know, unique and different. And yet we go through so many of the same things. I know. And I think that's the beautiful thing about self-reflection is that you are not unique and you are not different. You know, like we always <laughs> tell our children, like, you're so unique and special. It's like, no, you're actually just this teeny, teeny on the planet. And I think when we humble ourselves and we ground ourselves in that, we are no different from anybody else. We are no better or less than, and I'm just a worker among workers on this planet trying to make it better. And I think coming from that place is what's really grounded me and given me forgiveness to myself, forgiveness to others. You know, we all do the best we can in the situations because underneath all us humans want the same thing. We want love. We don't want to be abandoned. We want to have intimacy, but you just, most of us are fearful of it. And you know, that's it. Plain and simple. Before I came across you, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I would have said that I knew anybody who was a sex addict or a, I had never heard the term love addict before you. Um, and like you say, the sex addict thing, it feels like, like you say, like a Tiger Woods or some celebrity who, you know, got caught cheating. You know, I'm so, we're so more accustomed or, or you know, familiar with, um, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction. And um, um, I actually dated a, a man while I was in my 30s who, was an alcoholic. And it, it was interesting because I thought while I was with him, I did a lot of uh, making excuses for him. And I always thought he was, um, he might've had a problem and it was a, it was a little a alcoholic kind of thing. Like he got out of hand and, um, and I, I got to tell you the craziest story. My mother earlier this year, we were driving somewhere and she said, Hey, whatever happened to him? He's a guy who's not on social media at all. So, you know, those, you know, every couple of years when somebody bubbles into your brain and you go and look for them and see what they're up to, I could never find him. So we were in the car and she was driving. And so I started looking up. I was like, I, I remember his mom died a few years ago. So I looked up her obituary and he uh, was a junior. So I said, oh, I wonder if his dad's still alive. So I Googled his name and obituary thinking I'd find his father's obituary. And I found his obituary. Aww. And it turned out that he, that alcoholism had truly, you know, taken his life. Um, yeah. and it was, it's interesting. I think of him more in the last, you know, five, four or five months than I had in the last number of years, because I just always thought, oh, you know, we'll run into each other someday at an airport and be able to, you know, say hello. And, uh, you know, it's bizarre to think, uh, and, and I think we all have that, that kind of story about mm -hmm. someone we know, yeah, but we don't really know many people with that that talk about a sex addiction or a love addiction. Um, but I think, and maybe thanks to your bravery, it's becoming a little bit more. I don't talked about. Yeah, I mean, I I just this morning that you know, 
you know, the, the author Elizabeth Gilbert for Eat, Pray, Love, mm-hmm. you know, that book that defined so many, like for even me, I was in recovery when it came out and she was talking about this fantasy, like leaving your reality, blowing up your marriage, going to a younger guy, then seeing it didn't fix you, then traveling the world, overeating in Italy, then (laughs) going to Bali and like finding the next guy. And that's like the journey. Like you got to travel and get out there and meet your person. And, and it's like, listen, that's her journey. And we all have our journey. I'm not dodging that at all. It's a beautiful story, but it's Mm -hmm. fantasy. It's dripping in fantasy and love addiction on so many levels and using sexuality to find your next person is what I say. So she just came out as a sex and love addict. And I was just like, thank you. Thank you. Because that story defines so many. I've even me, I went into fantasy when I read it, like, oh, maybe I should move. Maybe I should go to Italy and then go like, and if that was true, listen, Anthony Bourdain too died of love addiction. He was a recovering heroin addict. He was, you know, he didn't go to a program, but if anybody was going to find themselves in traveling, it was him. And he hung himself over a love that went bad. And it's like, we don't talk about these things. And honestly, you probably know a ton of people that need to be in this program because this disease is killing our society. Sex and love addiction is literally in the claws of everything. If you watch any movie, any television show, any song, it's about unrequited love, getting that ex back, that unavailable person, going out there looking for someone to complete you. That's what sex and love addiction is. And I was like, can I define it for you? Can I define it in my words where it helps people and how I I talk about it in the book? And that's why I wrote the book to make it accessible and entertaining. So here's how I define it. A sex addict, we look at that and it's someone that has one night stands, you know, on the dating app, swiping left and right, you know, but really a sex addict is anybody that uses their sexuality to manipulate and control and to use it as a currency. So an exchange. So that could even be a husband and wife if a wife or a husband uses their sexuality to manipulate the partner to get what you need. So that is a sex a sex addict side. And using masturbation to not feel your feelings, to look at porn and go into fantasy, that's all part of it. And wow. then on the love side, you know, is going after that unavailable person, that toxic relationship, trying to get someone to complete you, going into fantasy, relocating what Elizabeth Gilbert did, relocating, you know, romance obsession, all of those. And usually you use parts of each. You go from the sex, oh, I'm in this new relationship. Oh, my sex sexuality works. I use that. And then go to the love, love me, love me. And then on the other side of this addiction that nobody talks about is sexual anorexia that you then turn anorexic when you're hurt. You shut down your sexuality. You shut down romance. So a lot of people after bad, toxic, unavailable relationships, they then like stop dating for years. So it's this combination that you swing and underneath it, like I said, is fear of intimacy, fear of being loved, low self-esteem, fear of abandonment. All of that is underneath it. So that's the best way to define it in easily definition. Um, And yeah, that's it. I just needed to share that. Thank you. (laughs) 
Hi, are you loving this conversation with Brienne as much as I am? Would you do me a favor? To celebrate the 10th episode, would you please look down at your phone and tap to give the podcast a rating? Five stars would be an incredible 10th episode gift to me. As you know, this podcast is still in its formative episodes, so the more ratings we get, the more the platform algorithms will put this show in front of other listeners. Your rating will help the 40 Drinks podcast get exposed to people who may enjoy these conversations as much as you do. Okay, now back to Brienne, who tells me how a 16-year-old at an In-N-Out Burger drive-thru convinced her she would be in recovery for life. And now that you're 40, yes, <laughs> how, uh, you know, how do you... How is it different? How are those feelings different for you now, right? I know they they controlled your life for a very yes. long time. And I'm guessing that they don't go away completely. No. How are it's they a different? No, it's a progressive brain disease. And I don't think, you know, with chemical addiction, it's black and white. You just don't ever do it again. You don't pick up that drink. You don't snort right. that cocaine, you know. But with this is a progressive brain disease. So if you don't do the work to get the tools to maintain it. Cause you're always gonna, I'm always gonna be a sex and love addict. And I talk about it in the book when I got my six months chip. And this is when I really knew I was in this for life. Like I was a lifer. I got my six month chip. It was my first lead share where you lead a meeting, where you speak for 20 minutes about your story. And I went to an in and out burger afterwards at 9.30 at night. And there was this 16-year-old working at the drive-thru, like pimply kid, you know, just going through puberty. And I pull up at the drive-thru. And when I was giving him my money and he saw me, he goes, (gasps) like I took his breath away. He found me attractive. And I kid you not, it was the same shot up my arm, tingly, fire. Like up my body, like I had power and control over this 16-year-old little boy. Like it was insanity at its finest. Like God was showing me like, here it is. This is going to be forever because that first year, and let me just explain my first year of recovery, I didn't have sex for for the first year with my live-in boyfriend. If I was crying, he couldn't fix me. He couldn't come and make sure I was okay. I couldn't reach out to friends when I was crying. I had to sit with myself and feel my feelings and get through them myself because I was always looking for outside people to fix it. And that even looked like calling a girlfriend's one back to back saying, here's what I'm going through, blah. And then them not fixing me and calling somebody else and like using people. So what I did was I raped people of their energy all the time. And I know that about myself. I can still do that to this day, but now I have tools. I have meditation, prayer, being of service, speaking, you know, with the book is a a way of service. The podcast is a way of service, having sponsees, speaking at rehab facilities, because the number one reason people lose their recovery and chemical sobriety is over a relationship. Like that will take you to your knees. So it was a very long journey for me. And I know if I don't, show up every day for my program, which means just so you know, going to a meeting in the morning and a meeting at night, saying the serenity prayer, hitting my knees, praying to a God that I don't always understand, being grateful for things in my life, even when shit's not going my way. Like 
over communicating with my husband when I don't want to not numbing out on social media, being present with anybody that's in front of me. That is a choice I have to make. And it's exhausting because people exhaust me. So it's like intimacy exhausts me. So it's like, I have to do that every day at my age and how much recovery or in a matter of months, I will be living in fantasy in my head. I will be numbing out on social media. I will be looking for good reviews or bad reviews to give me my worth, whether it be in a movie, a book review, podcast review, whatever. Like I have the capability of losing myself so easily and wanting to go into fantasy and romance and then it spirals and next thing you know, I'm like moving across the country somewhere else for some person I don't even know. And like, I know that about myself. So I'm forever going to be a lifer. This is a progressive disease. It's, it's, it's a, you can learn things to help yourself, but it's forever going to be there. And I'm, I'm aware of that. And to this day, I still can't watch The Notebook. I still can't watch Moulin Rouge. There's some movies and songs I can't listen to because it triggers me too much. And I go into fantasy and I go, I then go, oh, I wonder what my old boyfriend in high school is doing. Let me just do a Google search. Like you said, like that's mm -hmm. fantasy. That's fantasy to go yeah. back and do that. So I'm very um, aware of it. And I now get to help clients. Like I have a bunch of clients that I that can't walk into the rooms because they're too well known. And I help them walk through this addiction and get on the other side of it. And I'm really grateful for that. Wow. Um, it was interesting what you said about social media, because it is so pervasive in our lives. Mm -hmm. And for those of us of a certain age, we came, we came of age before social media. Thank yes. goodness there was no, Hallelujah! <laughs> oh my God. Thank goodness. There were no camera phones when I was in my twenties. I just have to say, I always had a camera with me, but I've always said I own all the negatives. Yeah. <laughs> so I know where all those pictures are. Um, oh, I can't imagine if I grew up with this social media, I probably would kill myself. I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. kidding. Like mm -hmm. it was already so difficult because I talk about in chapter seven a lot, social media in the book and compare and despair. That's my number one character defect. I have to be greater than or less than someone. And I always am 99% less than I'll make myself less than that. If I had social media during those formative years when my parents were getting divorced, things were really bad. You know, I was in my prime of my addiction. I I don't know if I'd be here on this planet, honestly, because it would have probably tortured me to death. Oh, oh, that's terrible. Yeah. And and I think the that social media is is giving young people unrealistic expectations. Yes. A hundred percent unrealistic expectations. And that's the thing that really this disease and it's one of the characteristics in sex and love addicts anonymous is we assign magical qualities to others we idealize and pursue them and then blame them for not fulfilling our fantasies and expectations and social media emphasizes that the filters the only looking at the good even people that do those crying pictures when they're having a hard time you know they post those crying pictures it's like you're taking a picture of you at your lowest moment. Like you're thinking to do that instead of just being with yourself and experiencing that healing that right. you have to then put it out into the world. It's just so toxic. And me in recovery, 
literally knows that. And I, it's, I can go down the rabbit hole and I, to this day, it's the number one thing I have rules around. I don't have rules around not cheating outside my relationship. I can have guy friends now, but I choose not to. I have a lot of fellows, male fellows in the program that are friends, but I don't go hang out with a bunch of guys or get coffee or whatever. But it's like the one that still plagues me is Instagram, TikTok, social media, putting it out there. It's like being over sexual, especially for young girls. It's like that still triggers me and I have to have a lot of rules and boundaries around it. Well, because you, I know you're on social media and you use it from a business perspective, certainly with your podcast and promoting your book. So how challenging is that for you? It's very challenging, especially as first when the book came out and it was like all encompassing and the interviews and everything. And I felt like I had to do it. And it was like this machine that was taking off and I had to jump on it. And I had to transition from just being an actor and posting actor stuff. So it was really hard. And then comparing myself to other authors that have been around and then you know looking at their reviews which is toxic and looking at their posts and how they're doing it and I just had to stop and my husband's like you have to stop because he's in recovery the lucky thing he's has 33 years in AA and he's in a lot of recovery so he could see me spiraling and I had to sit down and be like okay here are the rules Like I can go on and post in the morning what I need to post. Then I need to stay off. I can check it one more time before I pick up my son. But it's it's still to this day, it's hard to keep to those rules. But I have to, you know, and he now is telling me, you need a break. You've Mm -hmm. you promoted the book and the podcast for a year. Like you cannot promote for a month and it will be okay. And I'm still like. But then who's going to promote it? My PR team's not working. I don't got a big machine behind me. I have to do it if no one else is doing it. And it's like, right. how about letting God do it? How about trusting? And I was like, oh, shit. But I still haven't <laughs> listened to him. Like, I'm still a work <laughs> in progress. Right. Just the other day, I had to read chapter eight again about letting, just to go back to that, letting an unavailable friend from Instagram trigger me and I was like I know this person's unavailable why do I keep expecting them to be available as a friend and I had to go back and read chapter eight about letting go of people that don't show up for you yeah so I'm a work in progress still to this day <laughs> aren't we all I mean all of us are and, and and it's interesting I mean letting go of people who no longer fit us no longer suit us is something I think we become brave enough to do in our 30s and 40s. And, you know, as we do become more grounded in ourselves and more trusting of ourselves, it becomes a little bit more obvious who's not filling us up. Yes, it is. It's like a mirror is like, finally, you can't ignore it anymore. You keep looking around it and you're like, wait, this person's ghosting me. Wait, I keep going back to this unavailable person. And what I say with that is, where are you unavailable? Why are you picking those people to be in your life? Look at that. What are you looking for? Are you looking to like win them over? Are you looking for them to validate you in some way? Even family members, I had to do a deep dive, deep clearing out of family members that didn't show up for me, that didn't respect my boundaries. And I even had a year and a half off my father. We stopped talking for a year and a half because he was unavailable. He didn't show up for me sometimes. He abandoned me in his own self and, you know, and then setting up new boundaries and hoping the relationship comes back. But most of the time they don't. And you have to go through a grieving period. And I think in your 40s, you are finally like, 
wait, I'm halfway through my life. I better do it now or I'm going to spend another 15 years. They say like 15 years, you go through another one at 55 or something like that. You get do like another reevaluation. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. As a parent, how are, how are you raising your, is it, I think it's a son, right? Yes. It's a yeah. son. Four. Yeah. He's four. Oh my God. Yeah. Turn um, four. That's amazing. Um, how are you, you know, what are you bringing from your journey from what you've learned mm-hmm. to your interactions with him? Well, first, number one, I don't let him see anything that is too adult for him. I don't let him watch certain movies. I don't let him see visuals. Um, I really protect his innocence because I definitely saw porn love stories way too young and it affected my like, oh, that's what a that's what a relationship looks like. You Somebody's got to drink some poison or stab themselves for love. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I thought. So I protect him in that. And I have a lot of boundaries with him as a mother. You know, he he's not mine. I don't own him. And with my family and especially my parents, God bless them. They came from really turbulent backgrounds. But I don't blame my parents, just so you know. But it's interesting to look at the lineage of, of families and how it's very emotionally incestuous is what I like to say. It's very like the parent's energy is always supposed to be coming down to the kid. And for my childhood, my energy was to the parents. Like I completed them. I gave them their worth. So with my son, I'm he's his own person. He has his own God. I get to teach him right from wrong. I get to have boundaries with him. If mom's meditating, mom is meditating. This is her self-care. If we're speaking, this is, you know how to do your chores. You earn allowance. You know how to manage money. I'm teaching him all those things at age four. Also saying, not everybody's going to like you, Davis. Not everybody's going to, you're going to be friends with and that's okay. And you're not going to like everybody. And teaching him those things and teaching him how to be his own own person he brushes his teeth he vacuums the house he does all these things and I'm hoping that when he grows up he's self-sufficient he doesn't look for anyone else to complete him you know I let him have his feelings even when they seem unrealistic let's be honest he's a toddler (laughs) but I you know the other day he had a meltdown and I looked at him and I was like sometimes I want to have a meltdown like that you know like sometimes I just want to throw my hand. I know. You're like, Ooh, that looks like it feels good. Yeah, right. <laughs> but then I also get to say, you can have your feelings, but you can't like shout at me. Like mm-hmm. that's manipulative. I said that to him the other day. You are being manipulative right now and I don't appreciate it. And I'm going to walk away. And when you're done crying and having your feelings, then we can talk about it. So I'm not denying him his truth, whatever it is. But there has to be boundaries around it. And I also don't give him everything he wants. I I don't allow him to be on the iPad playing because it's so toxic for me just mm-hmm. looking at a phone and it's overstim. They made it as a drug. So I'm not going to do that to my son where he gets dependent on that. I'm not going to let him play video games. I know tons of parents disagree, but it's fantasy. It's not living in reality. So I'm really trying to protect his mind as long as possible. And then just, you know, realize I'm going to fuck up. I'm a, I'm a human. I'm a flawed human and I'm going to make mistakes. But here's the number one thing I do that I think has made the biggest difference. And 
I wish I had as a child that the parent admits to making a mistake. The other day I said, you know what? Mom shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. I apologize. Do you forgive me? And he's like, thank you, mama. And it was just like, there's something about a parent taking accountability that then teaches them to take accountability. So I don't know. That's been really great for me because I have to tell you the moment my mom said to me, I'm sorry, I wasn't a great mom. I did the best I could because of my background, but I, I'm really sorry. And it was just this moment of like, thank you. Just thank you for saying that. Because as a child, you just want your parents to love you. And there's something when they say sorry, it just like lets all that resentment go. And I just want to give my son that. So hopefully I, we're doing a good job. And, you know, being a parent is hard. It triggers you. It triggers everything you ever thought. And I can't imagine not being in recovery. I, I couldn't imagine. I, I have so much uh, grace for my parents that weren't in recovery. Right. Right. They they did it with the handicap. Yes. Yes. Because even I sometimes want to lose my shit. I want to be like, just eat the chicken. Like, stop. <laughs> Chew your food. Like, you need a bath soon. You're driving me crazy. Like, I, I get it. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're doing an amazing episode, uh, amazing job of, um, of just being thoughtful and present and, and, and intentional. Yeah. I'm, and I'm really lucky to have a good partner that does the same thing. It'd be, if I was doing it myself, it wouldn't be as effective, but, and we call each other on it. We over communicate, you know, if my husband has a work call and he's been taking the phone, I'm like, can you please go in the other room? Cause we don't want to be on our phones in front of him. Like we check each other in a, mm -hmm. in a very loving way, not in a get off your phone way. So we're really present with trying to bring that into our lives as much as possible. That's amazing. Brian. I am so grateful for you joining me here today. Um, before I let you go, please um, share with me where you can be found online. Yes. So please, if anything I said resonates and you need resources or anything or a friend, you know, might have a sex and love addiction, please reach out to me at the Brianne Davis on Instagram. I try to answer all my DMs and send you to the right place. Have Zoom meetings. You can go if you're not in an area that has meetings. You can get my book right now on Amazon, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. The Audible, I read it, which was absolute torture to act out that story of Roxanne, which is AKA me. And it's really fun. And I wrote it like a television show or a movie. And then you can find secret life podcasts everywhere you listen to podcasts. And there's all kinds of secrets from all walks of life, you know, well-known people, but most of the people are anonymous and I changed their names and we just released our hundredth episode. And I'm so grateful. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. All right. Well, um, uh, I wish you the best. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I look forward to uh, following you. I can't wait to read the book. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode make you think of a certain friend or family member? I would be grateful if you'd share it with them. Next week, I'm talking to my old friend, Brooke Schrader, who had her first baby at 40 and got knocked for a loop by postpartum depression and anxiety. I hope you'll join me for this wonderful conversation. 
the 40 Drinks podcast is produced and presented by Savoir Faire Marketing Communications.